Chapter Nine, Part One of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Simon. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Nine, Part One. My Life and Troubles in Unyanyembe Continued It never occurred to the Arab magnates that I had cause of complaint against them, or that I had a right to feel aggrieved at their conduct, for the base desertion of an ally who had, as a duty to friendship, taken up arms for their sake. Their salams the next morning after the retreat were given as if nothing had transpired to mar the good feeling that had existed between us. They were hardly seated, however, before I began to inform them that as the war was only between them and Mirambo, and that, as I was afraid, if they were accustomed to run away after every little check, that the war might last a much longer time than I could afford to lose, and that as they had deserted their wounded on the field and left their sick friends to take care of themselves, they must not consider me in the light of an alley any more. I am satisfied, said I having seen your mode of fighting, that the war will not be ended in so short a time as you think it will. It took you five years, I hear, to conquer and kill Manwasera. You will certainly not conquer Mirambo in less than a year. Aside, the same war is still raging, April 1874. End of aside. I am a white man, accustomed to wars after a different style. I know something about fighting, but I never saw people run away from an encampment like ours at Zimbizo for such slight cause as you had. By running away, you have invited Mirambo to follow you to Unyanyembe. You may be sure he will come. The Arabs protested one after another that they had not intended to have left me, but the Wanyamezi of Gaziba had shouted out that the Muzungu was gone, and the cry had caused a panic among their people, which it was impossible to allay. Later that day, the Arabs continued their retreat to Tabora, which is twenty-two miles distant from Futo. I determined to proceed more leisurely, and on the second day after the flight from Zimbizo, the expedition, with all the stores and baggage, marched back to Mazangi, and on the third day to Quihara. The following extracts from my diary will serve to show better than anything else my feelings and thoughts about this time, after our disgraceful retreat. Quihara, Friday, 11th August, 1871. Arrived today from Simbili, village of Mombomas. I am quite disappointed and almost disheartened. But I have one consolation. I have done my duty by the Arabs, a duty I thought I owed to the kindness they received me with. Now, however, the duty is discharged, and I am free to pursue my own course. I feel happy, for some reasons, that the duty has been paid at such a slight sacrifice. Of course, if I had lost my life in this enterprise, I should have been justly punished. But apart from my duty to the consideration with which the Arabs had received me, was the necessity of trying every method of reaching Livingston. This road which the war with Mirambo has closed is only a month's march from this place, and, if the road could be opened with my aid sooner than without it, why should I refuse my aid? The attempt has been made for the second time to Ajuji. Both have failed. I am going to try another route. To attempt to go by the north would be folly. Mirambo's mother and people, and the Wazui, are between me and Ujiji, without including the Watuta, who are his allies and robbers. The southern route seems to be the most practicable one. Very few people know anything of the country south. 
Those whom I have questioned concerning it speak of want of water, and robber rasavira as serious obstacles. They also say that the settlements are few and far between. But before I can venture to try this new route, I have to employ a new set of men, as those whom I took to Mfuto consider their engagements at an end, and the fact of five of their number being killed rather damps their ardour for travelling. It is useless to hope that Wanyamwezi can be engaged, because it is against their custom to go with caravans as carriers during wartime. My position is most serious. I have a good excuse for returning to the coast, but my conscience will not permit me to do so, after so much money has been expended, and so much confidence has been placed in me. In fact, I feel I must die sooner than return. Saturday, August 12th. My men, as I suppose they would, have gone. They said that I engaged them to go to Ujiji by Marambo's road. I have only thirteen left. With this small body of men, whither can I go? I have over one hundred loads in the storeroom. Livingston's caravan is also here. His goods consist of seventeen bales of cloth, twelve boxes, and six bags of beads. His men are luxuriating upon the best the country affords. If Livingston is at Ujiji, he is now locked up with small means of escape. I may consider myself also locked up at Unyanyembe, and I suppose cannot go to Ujiji until this war with Murambo is settled. Livingston cannot get his goods, for they are here with mine. He cannot return to Zanzibar, and the road to the Nile is blocked up. He might, if he has men and stores, possibly reach Baker by travelling northwards, through Urundi, thence through Rwanda, Caragua. Uganda, Unyoro, and Ubari to Gondokoro. Pagazis he cannot obtain, for the sources whence the supply might be obtained are closed. It is an erroneous supposition to think that Livingston, any more than any other energetic man of his calibre, can travel through Africa without some sort of an escort, and a durable supply of marketable cloth and beads. I was told today by a man that when Livingston was coming from Nyasa Lake towards the Tanganyika, the very time that people thought him murdered, he was met by Said bin Omar's caravan, which was bound for Ulamba. He was travelling with Mohammed bin Garab. This Arab, who was coming from Urunga, met Livingston at Chikumbis, or Kwachikumbis, country, and travelled with him afterwards, I hear, to Manuema, or Maniema. Manuema is forty marches from the north of Nyasa. Livingston was walking. He was dressed in American sheeting. He had lost all his cloth in Lake Liemba while crossing it in a boat. He had three canoes with him. In one he put his cloth, another he loaded with his boxes and some of his men. Into the third he went himself with two servants and two fishermen. The boat with his cloth was upset. On leaving Nyasa, Livingston went to Ubisa, thence to Uyemba, thence to Urungo. Livingston wore a cap. He had a breech-loading double-barreled rifle with him, which fired fulminating balls. He was also armed with two revolvers. The Wahio, with Livingston, told this man that their master had many men with him at first, but that several had deserted him. August 13th A caravan came in today from the sea-coast. They reported that William L. Farquhar, whom I left sick at Mwapa, Usagara, and his cook, were dead. Farquhar, I was told, died a few days after I had entered Ugogo. His cook died a few weeks later. My first impulse was for revenge. I believed that Lucola had played me false, and had poisoned him, or that he had been murdered in some other manner. 
but a personal interview with a Masahili who brought the news, informing me that Farkar had succumbed to his dreadful illness, has done away with that suspicion. So far as I could understand him, Farkar had in the morning declared himself well enough to proceed, but in attempting to rise had fallen backward and died. I was also told that the Wazagara, possessing some superstitious notions respecting the dead, had ordered Jaco to take the body out for burial. That Jaco, not being able to carry it, had dragged the body to the jungle, and there left it naked, without the slightest covering of earth or anything else. "'There's one of us gone, Shaw, my boy. Who will be the next?' I remarked that night to my companion. August 14th. Wrote some letters to Zanzibar. Shaw was taken very ill last night. August 19th. Saturday. My soldiers are employed stringing beads. Shaw is still abed. We hear that Marambo is coming to Unyanyembe. A detachment of Arabs and their slaves have started this morning to possess themselves of the powder left there by the redoubtable Sheikh Said bin Salim, the commander-in-chief of the Arab settlements. August 21st. Monday. Shaw still sick. One hundred fundo of beads have been strung. The Arabs are preparing for another sally against Marambo. The advance of Marambo upon Onyanyembe was denied by Said bin Salim this morning. August 22nd. We were stringing beads this morning when, about 10 a.m., we heard a continued firing from the direction of Tabora. Rushing out from our work to the front door, facing Tabora, we heard considerable volleying and scattered firing, plainly. And ascending to the top of my tembe, I saw with my glasses the smoke of the guns. Some of my men, who were sent on to ascertain the cause, came running back with the information that Marambo had attacked Tabora with over two thousand men, and that a force of over one thousand Watuta, who had allied themselves with him for the sake of plunder, had come suddenly upon Tabora, attacking from opposite directions. Later in the day, or about noon, watching the low saddle over which we could see Tabora, we saw it crowded with fugitives from that settlement, who were rushing to our settlement at Kruhara for protection. From these people we heard the sad information that the noble Kabis bin Abdullah, his little protégé Kamis, Mohammed bin Abdullah, Ibrahim bin Rashid, and Saif, the son of Ali, the son of Shaikh, the son of Nazib, had been slain. When I inquired into the details of the attack, and the manner of the death of these Arabs, I was told that after the first firing which warned the inhabitants of Tabora that the enemy was upon them, Kamis bin Abdullah and some of the principal Arabs who happened to be with him had ascended to the roof of his tembe, and with his spy-glass he had looked towards the direction of the firing. To his great astonishment he saw the plain around Tabora filled with approaching savages, and about two miles off, near Kazima, a tent pitched, which he knew to belong to Marambo, from its having been presented to that chief by the Arabs of Tabora when they were on good terms with him. Kamis bin Abdullah descended to his house, saying, "'Let us go to meet him. Arm yourselves, my friends, and come with me.' His friends advised him strongly not to go out of his tembe, for so long as each Arab kept to his tembe they were more than a match for the Ruga Ruga and the Watuta together. But Kamis broke out impatiently with, "'Would you advise us to stop in our tembes for fear of this Mshenti?' pagan? Who goes with me? His little protégé, Kamis, son of a dead friend, asked to be allowed to be his gun-bearer. Mohammed bin Abdullah, Ibrahim bin Rashid, and Saif the son of Ali, young Arabs of good families, who were proud to live with the noble Kamis, also offered to go with him. 
after hastily arming eighty of his slaves contrary to the advice of his prudent friends he sallied out and was soon face to face with his cunning and determined enemy mirambo this chief upon seeing the arabs advance towards him gave orders to retreat slowly Camis, deceived by this rushed on with his friends after them suddenly mirambo ordered his men to advance upon them in a body and at the sight of the precipitate rush upon their party Camis's slaves incontinently took to their heels never even deigning to cast a glance behind them leaving their master to the fate which was now overtaking him the savages surrounded the five arabs and though several of them fell before the arabs fire continued to shoot at the little party until Kamis bin abdullah received a bullet in the leg which brought him to his knees and for the first time to the knowledge that his slaves had deserted him though wounded the brave man continued shooting but he soon afterwards received a bullet through the heart little Kamis, upon seeing his adopted father's fall exclaimed my father Kamis is dead i will die with him and continued fighting until he received shortly after his death wound in a few minutes there was not one arab left alive late at night some more particulars arrived of this tragic scene i was told by people who saw the bodies that the body of kamis bin abdullah who was a fine noble brave portly man was found with the skin of his forehead the beard and skin of the lower part of his face the forepart of the nose the fat over the stomach and abdomen and lastly a bit from each heel cut off by the savage allies of mirambo and in the same condition were found the bodies of his adopted son and fallen friends the flesh and skin thus taken from the bodies was taken of course by the waganga or medicine men to make what they deemed to be the most powerful potion of all to enable men to be strong against their enemies this potion is mixed up with their ugali and rice and is taken in this manner with the most perfect confidence in its efficacy as an invulnerable protection against bullets and missiles of all descriptions it was a most sorry scene to witness from our excited settlement at quihara almost the whole of tabor in flames and to see the hundreds of people crowding into quihara perceiving that my people were willing to stand by me i made preparations for defence by boring loopholes for muskets into the stout clay walls of my tembe they were made so quickly and seemed so admirably adapted for the efficient defence of the tembe that my men got quite brave and wangwana refugees with guns in their hands driven out of tabora asked to be admitted into our tembe to assist in its defence livingstone's men were also collected and invited to help defend their master's goods against mirambo's supposed attack by night i had one hundred and fifty armed men in my courtyard stationed at every possible point where an attack might be expected to-morrow mirambo has threatened that he will come to kuhara i hope he will come and if he comes within range of an american rifle i shall see what virtue lies in american lead august twenty third we have passed a very anxious day in the valley of kuhara our eyes were constantly directed towards unfortunate tabora it has been said that three tembes only have stood the brunt of the attack abid bin suleiman's house has been destroyed and over two hundred tusks of ivory that belong to him have become the property of the african bonaparte my tembe is in as efficient a state of defence as its style and means of defence will allow rifle pits surround the house outside and all native huts that obstructed the view have been torn down and old trees and shrubs which might serve as a shelter for any one of the enemy have been cut 
Provisions and water enough for six days have been brought. I have ammunition enough to last two weeks. The walls are three feet thick, and there are apartments within apartments, so that a desperate body of men could fight until the last room had been taken. The Arabs, my neighbors, endeavored to seem brave, but it is evident they are about despairing. I have heard it rumored that the Arabs of Quihara, if Tabora is taken, will start en masse for the coast and give the country up to Marambo. If such are their intentions, and they are really carried into effect, I shall be in a pretty mess. However, if they do leave me, Marambo will not reap any benefit from my stores, nor from Livingston's either, for I shall burn the whole house, and everything in it. August 24th The American flag is still waving above my house, and the Arabs are still in Unyanyembe. About 10 a.m. a messenger came from Tabora, asking us if we were not going to assist them against Marambo. I felt very much like going out to help them, but after debating long upon the pros and cons of it, asking myself, was it prudent? Ought I to go? What will become of the people if I were killed? Will they not desert me again? What was the fate of Kamis bin Abdullah? I sent word that I would not go that they ought to feel perfectly at home in their tempers against such a force as Marambo had, that I should be glad if they could induce him to come to Quihara, in which case I would try and pick him off. They say that Marambo and his principal officer carry umbrellas over their heads, that he himself has long hair, like a Mnyamwesi Pagasi, and a beard. If he comes, all the men carrying umbrellas will have bullets rained on them in the hope that one lucky bullet may hit him. According to popular ideas, I should make a silver bullet, but I have no silver with me. I might make a gold one. About noon I went over to see Sheikh bin Nasib, leaving about one hundred men inside the house to guard it while I was absent. This old fellow is quite a philosopher in his way. I should call him a professor of minor philosophy. He is generally so sententious, fond of aphorisms, and a very deliberate character. I was astonished to find him so despairing. His aphorisms have deserted him. His philosophy has not been able to stand against disaster. He listened to me more like a moribund than one possessing all the means of defense and offense. I loaded his two-pounder with ball and grape and small slugs of iron, and advised him not to fire it until Marambo's people were at his gates. About 4 p.m. I heard that Marambo had deported himself to Kazima, a place northwest of Tabora, a couple of miles. August 26th. The Arabs sallied out this morning to attack Kazima, but refrained, because Marambo asked for a day's grace, to eat the beef he had stolen from them. He has asked them impudently to come tomorrow morning, at which time he says he will give them plenty of fighting. Quihara is once more restored to a peaceful aspect, and fugitives no longer throng its narrow limits in fear and despair. End of chapter 9, part 1